and welcome to the One Degree Shift podcast. I'm your host, Eric Termundi, and I'm excited to introduce you to the wonderful guests I've got on season two and the little things they're doing to create a more intentional future for themselves, for their teams, and for the communities around them. I hope you enjoy. Josh Linkner, thank you so much for joining the One Degree Shift podcast. How are you today? Couldn't be better. Now that I'm with you, of course. Well, you know, I, I often ask my guests to introduce themselves, and, and I'm going to ask you to do that too. But I think it's important for the sake of this episode that listeners know a little bit about your importance to me. Uh, for those who are listening, Josh and I have been friends uh, for, for years now. He's uh, an absolute powerhouse when it comes to the speaking industry. He's one of the best, not just that I know, but in the industry. Uh, and if you don't believe me, ask anyone else who's in it and they'll say the same thing. Um, Josh has been responsible for many of the introductions, the structure, the formatting of my keynote and really helping me get to where I am today. So Josh, before we get into who you are more specifically, thank you uh, for everything that you've done for me. And I'm grateful to have you on the show. Oh, you're too kind. I'm blushing, man. I don't deserve any of that, but it's very sweet of you to say. Thank you. You've got um, an exciting announcement coming up uh, later this month. Can you tell us about what's going on? Yeah, so um, my new book is coming out on 420, which could be a fun date for those who uh, partake. Sure. Be a blazing, uh, blazing success as long as you get a, enough Cheetos to go with it. But, That's right. Uh, the book is called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And the whole premise is sort of flipping what we think of innovation upside down. Normally, we think that only a select few can be innovative, like Elon Musk, or, or you can't be innovative in certain roles. Like unless you're wearing a ho hoodie or a lab coat, you're not allowed to be innovative. Hmm. Or innovation is really risky, or some of us aren't creative. So we flip all those myths upside down. This is all about cultivating small daily habits around creativity. There are little micro innovations, and it, it becomes way easier, way more accessible, way less risky. And the whole goal that I have in writing the book, Eric, is to make help everyday people become everyday innovators. So it's sort of like innovation for the rest of us mm -hmm. and teaches us how to, how to, how to hone and, and, and cultivate and ultimately deploy inventive thinking and creative problem solving to drive better outcomes in business and in life. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and I'm excited to dive into how ultimately we do that, but there's something that that's interesting me that I'm, that I'm curious to hear your take from. And the question is, is why now? And, and we often seen that some of the biggest companies in, in the world were born because of both the entrepreneur or the innovators intelligence, but also a, a timing thing, you know, whether it be Netflix or whether it be Facebook or whether it be the iPhone, it's the intersection of the innovator and the time that they're living in. Uh, what is it about big little breakthroughs that made now the best time for this book to be put into the world? Well, I started writing the book before COVID and during COVID, I invested over a thousand hours working on it, interviewing with, I interviewed CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and Grammy award-winning musicians trying to like decode their daily habits. But um, I think it is timely. And this was more by luck than design, I suppose. But, you know, with, with the COVID crisis, the world has hit like a giant reset button. And the patterns of the past have been broken. So the way we shop, the way we interact with companies, the way we work, the way we hang, the way we eat, all that stuff is changing. And so I think it's both creating an opportunity and a threat. For those that desperately cling to the past and hope things revert to the old approach, I think you're going to be in for some trouble. And I think what's trained us really is that, that we can no longer simply rely on those models of the past and expect the same result. But where the opportunity lies and where I think Big Little Breakthroughs is appropriately timed is it gives people a really step-by-step -step way to say, okay, 
we're in turbulent times. We're, we're in difficult in a difficult era, not even just with COVID. You've got you know, increasing rates of change and competition and technology on and on. And so it helps people say, okay, how can I rethink my approach? How can I retool? How can I upgrade the way I do my work and the work itself ultimately so I can sustain success over time? Where does this process start? How do I know that maybe, maybe I'm unaware that I need to be an innovator? Maybe I'm unaware that these big little breakthroughs need to be happening. Where do I start and how do I become more aware that maybe I could be more innovative uh, and solve problems more effectively? Well, you probably start with that acknowledgement because it's funny, the hard skills, quote unquote, of the past have largely become automated, commoditized, or outsourced. And so the only way we can really thrive individually in the workforce or even as a business is is to really cultivate these skills. And and there was a recent report by the World Economic Forum. They talked about the future of, and they used to talk about about the future of work, but they're saying that the most needed job skills in just 2025 four of the top five all relate to creativity and innovation. So I think that they, these have become gone from optional to mission critical to win in highly competitive times. So I think first it's acknowledging that. The next thing is recognizing that there's no such thing as a not creative person. Mm-hmm. Many of us don't feel creative, which is heartbreaking to me, but the research is crystal clear that as human beings, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, it can manifest in different ways. Like I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I try. So not everybody needs to paint on canvas to be creative. You can be creative as a lawyer or a dentist or you know, as a software engineer. So, but, but we all can, in fact, be creative. So once we recognize the need and what, once we recognize that it is possible, it's a skill that can be developed, then it's about sort of, okay, what's my game plan? How am I gonna, how I'm gonna build and cultivate and ultimately deploy these skills? And that's what the book does. It gives people very step-by-step instructions on how do you train? Like an athlete would train, and you know, how do you train your creativity muscles so you can achieve better outcomes? Tell me a little bit more about training those creativity muscles. And, you know, cause let's just say when I first heard, uh, you know, the idea of innovation and creativity, I often associated with that with strictly entrepreneurs. You had to be entrepreneurial to be an innovator. There must be some sort of relationship between, you know, an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. You know, to me, it's just about being creative and, and, and executing on innovation inside an organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, that, f- that flexing and that practicing of the creativity? Another thing that's misunderstood, even about entrepreneurs, you think of entrepreneurs taking these wild swinging risks, like mm-hmm. betting everything. And actually the best entrepreneurs do take some risk, but they're actually more focused on how do we de-risk trying, how do you de-risk what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the book actually lays out, how do you de-risk creativity? You know, if, 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 if you're faced with a, you think innovation is bet your career, put your family in jeopardy. If the stakes are that high, we just gravitate to doing nothing. And so what I tried to do was lay out, how can you get more creative without taking irresponsible risks? You know, one of the things that I think we should also look at if we're calculating risk is, you know, what's the risk of doing nothing? What's the real risk of standing still? Mm-hmm. And, and that may be a much greater risk than trying a, a new approach. Um, but back to your question around cultivating these, these skills, a lot of it has to do with rituals and rewards that we can do individually or organizationally. One of my favorite examples in the book is this, comp- this guy who I interviewed from London he has like a 50 some person nonprofit organization. And he was trying to like, how do I get my people to stay creative? How do I get them to recognize that, that creativity, is, innovation is part of the gig and that I want you to take responsible risks. So he does this fun ritual. Every Friday, he has something called F up Fridays. Mm-hmm. He says the whole word. I'll just be PG here today. Yeah. But F up Fridays are this. They have a huge brown bag lunch, all 50 some people in the company. And they go right around person to person. They stand up and say, all right, here's what I effed up this week. And here's what I learned from it. Mm-hmm. And instead of people like 
putting them in corporate timeout, they're clapping and cheering. And it's, it's like a badge of honor. Right. And when they get to someone that didn't have something up that week, they're like, well, why not? What are you going to try next week? And so just think about the message that that drives deep into the DNA of this organization about, again, the importance of taking responsible risk, the important, importance of, of deploying our creativity muscles. Can you tell me a little bit about like the, the, the time it takes to practice these things? And, and where I'm going with this is that we say, say we might have a, a fast growth, high margin tech company that's got you know millions of dollars in the bank and then just, just headed straight for the moon. On the flip side, we might have a more traditional business, tight margins, you know, everyone's working hourly. We don't have a lot of time to be able to take on a Friday, you know, whether it be a lunch or an afternoon to, to celebrate these things. It's just, it's just too tight. You know, where do we start when things are a little bit more structured? We don't have that flexibility to be able to be more creative and to be able to also maybe build a stronger sense of connection across our team, because I would see that this F up Fridays is great, not just for innovative practices, but it allows the team to trust each other more effectively and to get into the next week uh, with a little bit more confidence. So can, can you tell me a little bit about being more creative in, in more traditional, let's just say conservative settings? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to, I mean, that, that works for them, but it doesn't work for IBM. So what is You're right. It's got to be authentic. Um, the good news though, it really, you know, back to time, it doesn't take as much time as you might think. Like I literally do a five minute a day, five, mm-hmm. five minute a day creativity ritual that gets my juices flowing. So it doesn't, that's a cool thing. Big little breakthroughs shows people how they can really deploy these skills without investing millions of dollars or a bunch of time. It's, it's pretty efficient and effective. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, I, I, w- I always joke around with though, is like, I talk to companies all, all over the world and they say, I'd love to be more innovative, but you're like, okay, wait for yeah, it, sure. <laughs> but I, I don't have enough. And then there's like a fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough team members. I don't have enough equipment, but I always, you know, kind of playfully respond that, you know, if the amount of external resources you have equals your level of creativity, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and mm-hmm. startups would be the least. Mm-hmm. But you really don't necessarily need like more time and money. If you really do have a time problem, again, five minutes a day is not that big of a task, but I would say, okay, let's do this. Let's do a, a, a creativity sprint on how we can save 30 minutes a week. That's mm-hmm. it, 30 minutes. How can we save 30 minutes? It, they, I don't even care if it's one minute at a time. Like, oh, if we move the printer a little bit closer, we might save four steps. And so could we, could we nitpick the way we approach our week, even scheduling or when you do coffee breaks or changing your commute schedule or whatever, could mm-hmm. you use creativity to find 30 minutes? Mm-hmm. And most people would say, yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's a great, do that. And now you get this 30 minutes. So instead of just letting it go back into the, the normal stream of your, your work, say, okay, now let's carve that 30 minutes out. And let's have that instead of being heads down time, where you're working on your to-do list, let that be heads up time. Right. And then maybe you do that a few months later, you can find another 30 minutes. And again, it doesn't take huge reservoirs of time or resources to get creative. And we can use, in fact, our creativity to create more time and resources. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that makes total sense. Can you tell me a little bit then about the relationship between uh, creativity, innovation, and, and, and habit development? And, and I'll give you a little more context before you answer the question. To me, building a habit is the ability to, to do the same thing over and over again. But every time we have a big little breakthrough, we're probably discovering something new. We're probably taking a little, in my language, a, a one degree shift. How do habits then enable us to be more creative and do something different while the primary structure of a habit is to do the same thing over and over again? Yeah, that's that's a thoughtful question. So the, what you're habitualizing is the is the process of creativity. Mm-hmm. You're habitualizing creative problem solving and inventive thinking. You're not cookie cuttering, you know, delivering cookie cutter 
outcomes from those mm-hmm. sessions. So in other words, like you could get in the habit of, of exercising, but every time you go to the gym, you don't have to do the same thing. You could do different things when you're there. And mm-hmm. so you could, you could use the same technique 30 days in a row, but each day you direct it at a different problem or you focus on different creative outputs. Mm-hmm. So again, I think what you want to do is habitualize the process, but not habitualize the outcomes because those should, you're right. They should be fresh each time by definition. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the big little breakthroughs that you've had in the process of writing the book based on what you've learned? Are there any, ha- you know, any habits that you've changed in your life with your family, with how you're approaching the work that you do? Yeah, a few. I think I've gotten much better at being more experimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, not like uh, that term sounds kind of like you're being weird, but um, so Jeff Bezos, and I really don't talk much about Amazon or Netflix in the book because we already know they're creative, but sure. I did, there was one quote from Jeff Bezos that was fascinating to me. He said, the, the success of Amazon is directly correlated to the number of experiments that we run mm-hmm. every day, every week, every month, every year. And so I've been trying to be more deliberate about having my own culture of experimentation. I really believe that all of us, whether you're a company of one or you're a company of 100,000, should be constantly running lots and lots of little experiments. In other words, letting all ideas come out but then prototype, prototyping them in, the, in the, the least cost, least time way. We're talking mm-hmm. like duct tape and a paperclip stuff. Right. But if, and recognizing that the optimal number of failed experiments is not zero. If you have zero failed experiments, you're not getting that great, really. And so I like to try to be running now four or five little experiments all the time. Right. And instead of making wide sweeping decisions or full global change, I just say, I'm going to try this on a Tuesday afternoon on one conversation. Let's see how it works. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been much more deliberate about experimentation, I think, as a result of the book. Yeah, that, that, that's one. I mean, the, the other thing is that, at least with eye-opening for me, is the, the role that revisions play in the creative process. You know, mm-hmm. in our fantasy world, we, we imagine, the movies, that an idea comes in your head. It's like a lightning bolt of inspiration from the gods, yeah. and it's perfect upon launch. And mm-hmm. that, like, never happens, almost yeah. zero. More often than not, ideas, even good ones, come out with, and they're kind of flawed. Right. And they only get polished and refined in, to the point where they're successful. There's a great quote that what, what, what do all great authors have in common? And the answer is terrible first drafts. Right, right. So I, I also learned from the book to take the, the, the weight off your shoulders to, to launch a perfect, like fully defensible idea. I don't even like calling initial ideas ideas because by definition, an idea is subject to scrutiny and judgment. Mm-hmm. I prefer to call them sparks. Because if you think about it as a spark, like a little tadpole, you don't, you're, you're not inclined to be critical of it because often it's the spark that leads to the spark that leads to the spark that really becomes the idea. Mm-hmm. So I've been much more um, generous to myself and others on let the sparks fly. It doesn't matter if you have a bunch of bad ones and let's see, let, let them mature a little bit, give them some re- room to breathe and just don't expect perfection upon launch. It really is the, the process, the unglamorous process of refinement that ultimately makes great creative work. It's funny what you're saying too, is that, that a lot of these experiments are based on your, your experience. It's not necessarily comparing or competing against someone else. You know, going back to this idea of an experiment, you'll probably find it interesting. And maybe you've heard the story before too, but booking.com used to compete heavily against Expedia.com to be a better travel website. But then what they decided to do is shift to not compete against Expedia, but to compete against themselves. And now if you and I went to a booking.com landing page, we would not be seeing the same landing page because they test about a million different landing pages every single day and make those little tweaks based on the performance and based on the user experience. So I think that's uh that's, that's a great idea. Josh, we're, we're wrapping up and we're running out of time. Um, if you were to summarize this book in terms of the, the most important lesson that you think people can take away f- from this book, what would that be? 
course, hard to summarize, uh, you know, a body of work like this. But I would say that um, the, the most important thing that I'm suggesting is take small steps instead of big ones, which mm -hmm. is counterintuitive. We're taught to do these moonshots. But I say look for little teeny tiny areas to build creative skill, to make it part of your daily life. And the big stuff will kind of take care of itself. And, and, and I like the notion that when you take a small creative act, it's way less risky. It's more accessible. It's within our grasp. We're building skill at the same time. Small things add up to great things. And so the notion of instead of trying to figure out how do I paint the Mona Lisa, it's like, how do you first learn to paint? And mm -hmm. how do you learn to paint every day? How do you create a bunch of bad paintings? And over time, your Mona Lisa will emerge. Right. Fantastic. Josh, is there anything else you want to share with us today? Um, I would just encourage people, again, you can learn more in the book, but the research is so clear that we are all creative. I mean, all of us. And if, if we recognize that we've got this dormant superpower, really, I mean, we, we can't fly, we don't have x-ray vision, but all of us can be creative in our own ways. And recognize that that is one of the most powerful assets at our disposal. And when we recognize that even a small upgrade of creative ability can yield a giant upgrade in terms of the results that we care about, whether it's business or health or family, I, I think it's the perfect time, especially coming out of COVID, to, uh, to get creative. And I would also just encourage people to check out um, biglittlebreakthroughs.com. Certainly you can buy the book if you want, but even if you don't, still check out the site because there's, there's a free uh, assessment tool so you can like, sort of jump on the scales and see how you weigh in. Uh, there's downloadable worksheets. There's a quick start guide. There's all kinds of goodies there. So yeah, I would encourage people to check out Big Little Breakthroughs as your first baby step toward uh, unlocking dormant creative ability. Fantastic, as always, Josh. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for helping us make a one degree shift on a regular basis.